Welcome to Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Liel Leibowitz, and the date today, as far as I'm concerned, is October 100. Because it's been 100 days now since that dark Saturday, 100 days since more than 1,300 Israelis were murdered and hundreds more were kidnapped to Gaza by Hamas. 100 days is a long time. It's even longer when these days are filled with fresh, unbearable terrors. These past 100 days, we've seen major American cities roiled by clashes with pro-Palestinian protesters disrupting access to airports and cancer hospitals, targeting the Macy's Day Parade in the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting, and clashing violently with police. These past 100 days, we've routinely seen posters of Israeli hostages torn down and routinely heard so-called activists chant pro-Hamas slogans on college campuses and in town squares. When Israel launched a military effort to defend itself against the marauders and free its captive citizens, it was immediately accused of genocide, dragged to The Hague, and informed that the actual beheaders of babies and rapists of women and butchers of the old and infirm will face no consequences or pressure whatsoever. The list goes on. It's been, in short, a very difficult 100 days. We know there's a lot to think about. Some of us are concerned about what happens next in Israel and in Gaza. Some of us are worried about the toll this war is taking on Israeli soldiers and on Palestinian civilians. Some of us are still in shock that Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania and other institutions we once revered have fallen so precipitously. There are so many things to think about and keep in mind, so many reasons for heartbreak. A few years ago, the Lutheran minister, Nadia Bowles-Weber, wrote a beautiful essay that stayed with me. She used to live in a very old house, she wrote, where the electrical system was antiquated. It simply wasn't built for modernity and its plethora of gadgets. So every time she plugged in a new device, like a hairdryer or a stereo system, the fuse would pop because, well, it was just too much for the system to take. I feel like that's a particularly apt metaphor for all of us right now. So I'd like to suggest that today we do something a little bit different, that we put aside all the burning and relevant and haunting questions that have been with us these past hundred days and take a few moments to unplug and simply focus. To focus and those who had lost their lives, and to focus, too, on those who are still imprisoned, waiting to be freed. Because, quite simply, no matter what else happened in the last 100 days, or what happens in 100 days to come or beyond, nothing is more urgent than making sure every single one of our brothers and our sisters still in captivity returns home. Today then we bring you stories we've collected over these last 100 days as part of our collaboration with the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation. You can hear the entire collection on testimoniesarchive.com. Sadly, it continues to grow with more and more testimonies of survivors and bereaved family members added regularly. These are the stories of those we lost on October 7th and in those who were taken and for whom we still wait. 
These are the stories we must never forget. Hi, this is producer Ellie Blyer. In this first segment, we hear from Lior Perry. Lior's father, Chaim, was taken captive from kibbutz near Oz. Lior's half-brother, Danny, and Danny's friend, Caroline, were both tragically killed that day. Here's Lior. My name is Lior Perry. I uh, live in Tel Aviv. I'm 50 years old. I was born and raised in uh, kibbutz near Oz. And my father, Chaim Perry, 79-year-old, was abducted from his house. And uh, my brother, Danny Darrington, 34-year-old uh, British citizen, was murdered alongside his uh, German girlfriend, Caroline Ball, 22. What we learned is uh, that around 6.30 in the morning, my parents went into a safe room. They thought it would be over in, in just a few minutes like it always does. And then after a while, they started uh, getting uh, text messages about uh, terrorists might be uh, infiltrating the kibbutz. So started hearing the gunshots closer and closer and the grenades and the shouting. And uh, at a certain point, someone tried to open the, the safe room door. My father managed to push him away, but he knew they will come back again. So he told his wife to hide behind the sofa. It was dark because there was no electricity. And the second time they came, he didn't resist. He just... Uh, willingly came out, opened the door, came out, and by doing this, uh, he saved their life because they thought there was no one inside. She could still hear them telling him, don't resist, we're not going to hurt you. So that's the last she heard of him. She stayed there, bent behind the sofa for four and a half hours. She's, she's not a young woman. And as she said, she tried not to breathe. She managed to text us, the brothers, just once, and that's it. Only after four and a half, almost five hours, the police came and they freed her. That's my stepmother. She's my father's wife for many years now. And uh, on my mother's side, I have two British brother and sister who are not living in Israel. But unfortunately, Danny, my mother's son, came to visit on this uh, horrible day. And uh, unfortunately, it was, it was really, really unfortunate because he wasn't supposed to be there at all. He came as a tourist. He always come around this time of year. He's a photographer. He lives in Berlin, so he really loves to go to the Dead Sea and to the desert and take pictures. And he brought a good friend of his, Caroline Ball, who's just 22. I think she was a model. And they really had a great time just touring Israel and enjoying this uh, amazing place. And on Friday, he was supposed to come to my house in Tel Aviv and to spend the night here. And then I would take him on, on Saturday to the airport. And uh, he wrote me happily that he texted me on Friday. Friday, he said, I, I got a ride. I, I found a way to stay one more day in the kibbutz. So I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, on Saturday morning, seven in the morning, he texted me, shit, big balagan in the kibbutz. That's what uh, that was the, it was the last text I got from him. Yeah, and my father said, there's no, there's no end yet because we just received the sign of life, which was amazing. The Yochavet Lifshitz, the hostage was uh, freed. She said that she was with few people and they were all alive and well. One of them was my father, so it gave us big hope. Also, the frustration now is a little bit bigger because now we know he's alive and we know we can save him. We know he's in a good situation. We know he's not hurt. And we know that we are in the worst situation ever in terms of who's calling the shots. It's a bit desperate. And now our work here is to try to influence our own government to do whatever they can 
to pay whatever the price, because the worst price is behind us. Now, I hope that they would realize that this is time for damage limitation. And when you limit your damages, you, first of all, do whatever you can to fix the damage that you've created. So, but I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, this morning. I'm not so young anymore. And uh, the days of my uh, extreme emotion, if there ever were, are past. Because I'm very aware of the ongoing situation that's been going for years. And, and, and learning that my father is abducted and my brother was murdered is difficult. But just because I'm a father, I know the meaning of the importance of keeping life going. Even in the hardest situation, you must, I must show my girls that although it hurts and it's okay to admit that it hurts and it must hurt, more important is to see how we move on. So for me, it was as painful as any member of the family will die, but uh, we're on a mission now. We have no time to mourn. We have no time to sit and reflect on what could have been and what a wonderful uncle we all missed. But we have a bigger mission now, a huge mission. And uh, that's, that's all I'm concentrating on. My father uh, had the bad luck of attending all of Israeli major wars. And he was a simple soldier fighting in the front in 67 and in 73 and in 82. And always portraying himself like the anti-hero, not the best soldier, but just keeping himself alive and doing whatever needed. This is how he used to portray himself, like the anti-hero. And when the moment came, it turned out that he's a real hero. But I think, I think we all knew it. He really always liked to joke when he portrayed himself as, as such a, such a character. We, we, we knew it's some kind of a joke because you don't brag on being a hero. You can joke about yourself being an anti-hero. That's great. But somewhere inside, we all knew he's a real hero. He was, he was amazingly brave. And now also we know he's alive and he has no clue what has become with his wife. And we're just eager to bring out a message for him. All of your family are okay. And this is something he doesn't know. Basically, that's, that's the hardest part. Not him being held in captivity, not anything. Just the fact that he doesn't know that all of his family is alive and well, that, that for us is the hardest. On December 18th, 2023, sometime after we'd spoken with Lior, Hamas posted a disturbing video of Chaim along with two other hostages. Then on the 23rd, the New York Post reported that Hamas claimed that Chaim was killed by an Israeli airstrike. But this has not been reflected anywhere else even on the kibbutz's website or in Israeli media. With psychological warfare, it's hard to know what's true. What's for certain, though, is that 100 days on, Lior and the rest of the families are still waiting for their loved ones to come home. On our latest trip to Israel, I spent Motzei Shabbat down at Kikar Hatufim, or Hostage Square. It's a makeshift outdoor space right in front of the Tel Aviv Museum and across from the Kiryah, which is the IDF's headquarters. There are always people here, but on Saturday nights, thousands of Israelis gather in solidarity with those still captive, sometimes reaching over 100,000 people. I visited during Hanukkah, and on that Saturday night, families of those still held captive led us in candlelighting. 
שלום. אני של רבקה, ואני אח של אורן ורנר. איזה גבר. מה קורה, כוכב? בשבוע הזה, שבוע החנוכה, החליטו קהילות בארי, כפר עזה, נחל עוז, להתמקם כאן בכיכר ולקיים כאן מדי ערב מפגשים עם הציבור, הדלקת נרות משותפת וקריאה גם בתחילה. איתי בחיים, אנחנו יודעים את זה מחטופות ששוחררו ושהו איתו. הוא בחיים. ואם הוא יחזור לפה לא בחיים, היחידים שאחראים לזה זה ממשלת ישראל. אין לנו זמן לבזבז, אין לנו זמן. תחזירו אותם עכשיו, כשהם בחיים. מקדיש את הנר הזה לחירותו של איתי סלינסקי. It's a bit of a smaller crowd than usual, actually. I have a feeling maybe it had to do with the weather. Maybe it had to do with Hanukkah. There are tents for every group. Each kibbutz has a tent. Nova party has a tent. They did a candle lighting that we just heard. And... Uh, Groups of the families and people that are in support of bringing the hostages home are, are here, often wearing shirts with hostages on the shirts, and words like, bring them home now. Yeah, it's very powerful. I'm sorry, what is your name? Hadas. Your name is Hadas? Can you tell me about the sign you're holding? Yeah. I don't personally know either of them, but there are three guys from uh, kibbutz, Tal from Cholit, Itai from Berry, and uh, Tamir from Neuros. They are all kidnapped in Gaza. And you're, you're holding this? Because I'm a fellow citizen. And I care for them. Yes, as a fellow citizen. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Hi. What is your name? Hani. And where are you from, Hani? From Tel Aviv. And you're holding what in your hands? Uh, I'm a volunteer, and this is a band to remind us that we want to bring them back. All the hostages to bring them back home now. Can you describe the band and then, and then put the band on my wrist, please? Say hello. It's known all over the world that we are waiting for hostages. And we put it in the hand of each one that wants to, be, to wear it. Cost no money, all volunteers just to bring them back. It's volunteers for all the families here, for all Israel that just want the children back, the hostages back, everyone back, safe, now. We say, bring them now, home. Amen. 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 One of the girls, uh, she spoke about her cousin, Thais Versky. They're about to start a 
rally, but I'm going to talk to some of the family of Itai Sversky. Shalom, shalom, and shalom. So I, I heard you speak at the candlelighting, it was very powerful, and I just wanted to get a few words because it was in Hebrew and our podcast yeah. is in English. Um, maybe you could just tell me in a few words what you said at the candlelighting about your cousin? We know according to a few days ago, um, a week, even more than a week, that Itai is alive. We know it from hostages that were held with him and were released. They sent us this information and we know that other hostages that were taken alive are now dead and we know that their time is limited and that we have no other time and that they need to be released now in order to be released alive. We just don't have time and the Israeli government needs to do more and act different and the world needs to do more and put pressure on the parties involved. The pressure is put, that was put in on the parties that feed and host and support the Hamas isn't enough. And we just know that there is no other time. And in order to bring them back alive, it needs to be now. Because people are dying every day there. Every day they're sending new names of hostages that are now dead. Is there something in particular you want to tell our audience, the English-speaking audience abroad? Is there some kind of message you'd like to send them? That whoever cares of human life, whoever cares for the world to stay a safe place for us to live in and not a dangerous one where your house can be attacked in six in the morning and terrorists can come and take you out of your house. You didn't do anything, you didn't commit any crime, you didn't do anything wrong. Whoever cares about those things need to do much more. And the global pressure, the international pressure needs to increase. And it happened in Israel on October 7th. It can happen in New York, it can happen in Washington, it can happen in London, it can happen in Paris. It can happen all over the world. Hamas won't be only an Israeli problem. It won't. It's an ideology that we, we, ha we can't approve this new kind of terror to be the, the standard. It's impossible. I've noticed a change. I was here a month ago. I've noticed a change here at Kikar Hatufim that something has changed in the families. What is that thing that has changed? The days. It's been 64 days now. And our patient is coming to an end. And we now know that they are living on limited time. And we're running out of it. There is no time. 64 days in captivity and now after the hostages that were released, we see that this is a possible thing. It can happen. It happened once, it can happen with all of them. The release of the hostages is possible. We saw it, we got a proof. And I'm happy for every hostage that was taken out. But there's still 137 hostages inside Gaza. Some of them are already dead. And whoever is alive needs to be out of there now. I didn't ask you your name. Nama Weinberg. 
and your cousin's name, if you could say. Itai Svilski. Is there anything else you'd like to say? People need to, to communicate this. The Jewish nation around the world, the Jewish people around the world, whoever has a reasonable mind and understand that this is an ongoing crime against humanity, needs to communicate it and needs to explain it to some people that still think that Hamas are freedom freedom, fight freedom fighters, sorry. And and this is is brutality and barbarism that we've never seen before. And we don't want to see it ever again. Not in Israel and not in any other place in the world. Thank you. Thank you. I'm now looking at the dining room table that is set up in front of the Tel Aviv Museum. It's 200 and some seats, just one straight line. There's Hanukkiot, there's you know menorahs for each of the people still in captivity. It's just a big, <laughs> empty table. Plates, wine glasses, ceramic flowers, and their faces. Up next is a conversation we had as part of our testimonies archive with Soldier G, whose full name is redacted. I'm G. I'm a combat paramedic in reserve on uh, Unit 669. Today I study medicine in one of the universities in Israel, and I live in Tel Aviv. And I've been on reserve for the last five years. So October 7th begins for me around uh, 8. 30 in the morning. Uh, I'm at my fiance's parents' house near somewhere near Jerusalem. I wake up uh, in, with the background of sirens and I drive. It's like a 45 minute drive to the base, the 669 base. Once we get our gear, me and two other guys younger than me under mandatory service jump into a car, into a pickup truck, and start driving down south. We don't really know what's happening down there. The most of the information we gather on the way is listening to the news. At some point, there's a big traffic jam of ambulances and cars and police cars and so many people lying on the ground. Some are, I could see at that point, they're already dead. Many of them are injured. They're bleeding, screaming for help. Everybody's screaming, I need a doctor. I need a paramedic. I need an ambulance. They start treating uh, casualties there. And... I asked uh, one of the two guys that are with me if sh- should I 
keep on treating casualties here or do we need to keep on towards the destination that we, we have been given that that's our mission to get there as fast as possible. So he kind of stops me, says we need to get back in the car and we do this detour. And at that point, we already understand we get orders that there are a lot of terrorists all over the place and we we have our guns with us. We drive with our guns outside of the windows inside Israeli territory between Israeli communities. And as we drive, we see there's uh, so many bodies uh, on the way on the sides of the streets and vehicles that have been shot by machine guns. And we make our way towards a community called Nachaloz. Nachaloz is a small uh, kibbutz, and then not far from the border. I think it's more towards the northern part of the Gaza Strip. and we enter there with two other special units and our mission is to uh, liberate that community to uh, conduct uh, get in combat with whoever terrorists that are holding those houses they're holding people as hostages inside their own homes and deliberate that that area and that's what we do for a few hours and i think that one of the moments that i kind of understand, you know, beside going into that community and there's so many bodies all over the place. Terrorists, they're armed with tons of ammo, with RPGs. They're still holding their Kalachnikovs. They are loaded with ammo and they're lying there with their uh, green ribbons on their forehead. And in one of the houses we we enter, of course, it's all civilians hiding, residents hiding in their own homes and the bomb shelters their own homes, you know, everybody, every house in that area has a bomb shelter, of course, because they've been shot for years. Anyway, so we enter one of those houses and some one of the soldiers of uh, a team of one of the units we're working there with, he calls me out and he wants, he asked me to go to one, to some injured person lying there. He wasn't sure if he's dead or not. I, you go out of the house, there is a body lying there. I instantly see he's dead. And I'm, I look to see if he's, uh, you know, if he's Israeli, if he's a, a terrorist or he's been or he, he lives there or whatever. And there's nothing on him. I mean, I would assume that uh, as all those terrorists over there, they've been they were loaded with ammo crossing the border. So I figured he just ran out from somewhere to try and uh, and get to his loved ones or to protect his home, protect his home. And they enter the house and. I hear sounds of children. I go to the bomb shelter and there's a bunch of children with a, a woman hiding in the dark in, in the bomb shelter. And they start to check the children. And the woman inside repeats itself. She's all anxious. She's exhausted, dehydrated. She says that she, she's been telling her husband for years that they got to leave the place. She can't stay there yeah, a day longer. They've been bombed for years and this is the last straw. They're leaving. And at some point, you realize that the person lying outside on the porch is, or the back door is, or actually her husband. So kind of, you know, it stri- strikes me and they ask her for a piece of cloth or a blanket that she doesn't need anymore. I say it's to clean my, my gun. I give some excuse and actually use it to cover her dead husband's uh, a body that is lying there. After a few hours in Nachalos, we had quite a few injured soldiers on our side and we, and generally managed to liberate the place. We um, get a phone call from the unit. They told us to drive on to Far Aza. Of course, no information. We don't know what's going on there. And once we arrive, we see 
um, this mass casualty event of um, I would say dozens, if not hundreds of hundreds of casualties from combat that has taken place inside Faraza, and for hours we uh, we receive injured soldiers to the gate of the kibbutz. In addition to that, also uh, families, people that were shot in their own homes. It's it's just such a bizarre situation that we are treating so many casualties from combat soldiers, but we also have civilians, children, women, elderlies that with gun wounds, with some, um, many have suffered from smoke, uh, inhalation, burns, and, and, and uh, suffocating. And that's how it goes on for hours. And at that point, of course, there are so many bodies. There are dozens of, of, of bodies that come out um, and we just, we don't touch them. And we also, the guys that are in combat in houses just don't touch the bodies. And no, no one has the, the means and uh, no one's capable of dealing with the bodies at that point. We're just focusing on combat and trying to save whoever we still can. And at some point in the mid, let's say around 3 a.m., 4 a.m., we uh, are ordered to continue to kibbutz by the name of Barry, not far away from there. And there again, at the entrance of the kibbutz, there's like this parking lot near the yellow gate. And there's uh, casualties that are brought to us from a, a combat that is, is taking place inside the kibbutz. And at some point, we... Um, get orders to join not only the combat, but also to go into the kibbutz and try to rescue people that are trapped in their own homes or kept hostages uh, while the efforts of the teams are to deliberate the people and the uh, residents of the kibbutz. And we, uh, me and another guy from uh, our team, there were three people, that's it, that's our team. And we just jumped into one, two armed vehicles and the driver of uh, the, the front vehicle gets orders to where to bring us. And these, they tell us that they they have uh, got a report. They've got someone who's managed to reach out and say there are injured people inside that house. Then we drive through the kibbutz and there's gunshots from everywhere, from windows of some of the buildings where terrorists are still hiding. And then we start searching within the houses of the kibbutz near the area that we got an indication of, of people that are uh, injured and they're hiding there and they need help, which is totally surrealistic because we're inside a community inside Israel and we're actually we're moving like we're in like most hostile area of the world. And then we see while we are moving in the open area or even looking out of the window of the uh, armed vehicle, we see the most horrible things I've ever seen. Uh, you see uh, bodies of, uh, of people from any age, women, children. You see women that there's like these strings of blood draw uh, uh, all the way to a dead body, like someone was running and being shot at the back uh, from the back, or after being shot, she, uh, that woman was dragged uh, for quite a mileage down the road. And uh, you see dead children your bicycles, or it seems like people are trying to run. People that are cuffed, their hands tied behind their back, their uh, legs uh, are tied and they just were shot at the head, on the, in the head from behind. Um, I enter a room, there, there's a 
two girls. One of them is lying on the ground. There's, she's like half naked. And there's uh, remains of uh, semen on the uh, lower part of her back. And that's what we do for a few hours from the middle of the night until the next morning. We just uh, go through the kibbutz, following indications of people that manage to contact the outside world and rescue our people from the kibbutz and trying as much as possible not to focus the mind and the eyes on the horrors of uh, people beheaded of uh, limbs that were uh, someone tried to rip them out of the body, deep cuts in the area of the crouches of, of some of the bodies. And um, that's what we do within uh, morning towards the noon of uh, October 8th, it is already. And then we get for uh, further on missions with, in different places around the communities there, which there are still terrorists hiding and also uh, crossing the border from Gaza. In some way, it's like my my job, my duty is is, is always on the combat and, and this tension between the combat and the very soft humanitarian place of a paramedic that sees the patient as a, a as it is and. Many times I, f- I find myself looking in, in, these, uh, in, in people's eyes and it's this immense tragedy that I can't even begin to try and even understand um, to see elderly walking out of uh, vehicles that um, brought to me at the entrance where it's like sh- everywhere there's shooting and there's and there's blood all over the floor. And elderly is brought to me to the entrance of Far Aza, for instance. You see, this is their whole life is in this place. This is, they ha- this is their home. Many of them have um, fled to Israel in 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s. And this is where they thought they would never again be you know, haunted. And, uh, and, and to see them as their whole life is bursting in fire and all their beloved ones are dead because they saw them dead in front of them or slaughtered and executed in front of their eyes and they're brought to me and you see that their eyes are stunned. It's not, it's not even a point of grief. It's not a point of anger and they're just stunned. There's nothing. They, they come to their mouth and to try and express what they're feeling and you see elderly in that situation. There are two babies that were brought to me um afterwards i understand that they were held they were hidden in a closet in one of the rooms of their house and both their parents were found in front of the room and they were brutally shot you know there is shooting someone and there is a brutally shooting someone out of anger making sure the body is is just a a um scrutinized from every point so the bodies of her parents are just demolished on the floor with uh, uh, hundreds of bullets in them and the babies were hiding inside a closet and the soldiers that remained to deliberate that that home that house one of the soldiers there heard this baby's crying in the closet and he brings me these two uh tiny 10 months years year old babies and you understand like what what is going on who are the people that we're facing are these human beings like how is this possible so we, the first time we got a pause was toward noon of October 8th. We got to sleep, I think it was for two hours. It kind of collapsed in the, uh, I think it was in the back of our um, pickup truck. 
because that was uh, after a day and a half of, of um, extreme functioning and the most, uh, you know, the highest f- uh, performance of human body for, for me, at least in combat and in treating casualties and, and to be as uh, highest functioning as possible in every moment, because it's like a moment of uh, life or death, not only for casualties, but also for me within combat zone. During the first few days, it was only about functioning, only about functioning in a physical, the most basic physical needs of a body, a little little bit of sleeping, a little bit of eating. There is no way of undermining this, the, this, uh, um, catastrophe and the colossal attack that has been done in the communities and the Jews, Israelis, or whoever it was that was living and working in those communities because many times there is this uh, need to compare between one horror and another. For instance, between comparing and assaults that have been, uh, uh, there have been testimonies on assaults that um, other country soldiers has, have done in war. On, uh, in, in here, in October 7th, we're talking about people, I hope, you know, some say they're people and not savages that crossed a few miles into a community that their neighbors geographical wise and conducted the most horrible, horrible executing, uh, um, uh, uh, savaging, uh, um, crouches and, and uh, sexual, uh, uh, attacks, but in the most brutal means in children and women. And, you know, this is, this is what we're talking about. And this is not, like a, another war. This has been a very precise, very short, within a few hours, just crossing a border and conducting the most terrible, terrible uh, um, acts that a human being can't even uh, perhaps think about. So when time comes, I hope that no one is going to try to degradate the, these acts and try to compare them into other war zones in the world because this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a massacre and, and the levels of hate that you need to have in order to conduct such horrible acts um, a normal human being can't even think about. Next is a conversation with Yaniv Yaakov. Yaniv's brother, Yair, was taken hostage on October 7th. So were his nephews, Or and Yagil, as well as his brother's girlfriend, Meirav. Since we spoke with Yaniv, Or, Yagil, and Meirav have been released, but his brother, Yair, still remains a hostage. My name is Yaniv Yaakov. I live in Gedniavne in Israel. My brother, Yair Yaakov, his girlfriend, Meirav Tal, and his two boys, Or, who is 16, and Yagil, who is 12, were kidnapped from Nir Oz, it's a kibbutz in Israel, on October 7th. Yair was born in 1964, he's 59 years old. He's a really, really people's guy. He has friends all over, and whenever you you'll put him in, in a room, it doesn't matter what type of uh, characters will be in that room or what age of characters will be in that room. 
after a couple of minutes, he'll be talking to a lot of people. He'll be having connections to so many of them. He, he went to the kibbutz or moved out to the kibbutz when he was around 18. He practically moved to a kibbutz near the border because he really believed that this is the place that Israelis should live in, right? This is, the, this is the correct place where we should be because we will be, at least from his perspective, at the end, living in a good neighborhood with uh, our neighbors across the border. About Meirav, she's, she's a great character. She's, she's the funniest person I've, I've ever known. She, she's so funny. When she's around, you can hear her laughter going like two houses uh, away from where we are. She's always happy. And one of the things that my brother's older girl, who was, by the way, saved in this uh, horrific situation, uh, she said that for her, Meirav is someone who brought up the family back together and she loves the kids like they were her own. If we try to talk a little bit about the boys, they are boys. They are funny. They are full of energy. Like all youth, they love playing with uh, consoles and uh, computers and uh, they like uh, playing soccer together and basketball together. But uh, as, as I always uh, look at them, they are guys who always like to joke upon each other, right? They, they make jokes about my brother. They make jokes uh, about my son. And uh, it's always funny to sit with them together because it's never boring. On October 7th, around 6.20, 6.30 in the morning, there was a red alert. Uh, that started, and a missile attack was launched against Israel. It's hard to say, but we're kind of used to it, right? And uh, around uh, 8.45, something like that, quarter to nine, my wife called Yair because the missile attacks were so hard. This was not like the usual attacks that we have. And uh, she called him and said, Yair, are you okay? And he said, uh, yes. Uh, we are in the safe room. And she asked him, what about the boys? Where are they? And he said, they're at their mother's house. And, and, and to try to explain it, it's only 200 meters away from there, right? It's, it's a kibbutz. It's a very small place. But when my wife asked my brother, Yair, where are the boys? And he said, they're at their mother's house and they are alone. That was scary. That was the first part that we got really, really scared. We asked him, why don't you go and get them with you? And he said, I cannot go out. My wife asked him, why? And he said, there's a lot of mess here. And the Hebrew word for this, it's Yeshpo Balagan. There are shooting outside, which usually, right, shooting are far away in Gaza. But this time he said, they are shooting outside, which means inside the kibbutz. And so I cannot go and bring them over. We hang up with the, yeah, we hang up the phone and around 20 to 30 minutes after that, we got a WhatsApp audio from uh, Meirav. She sent it to her sister, crying for help, saying, 
they are shooting inside the house. And she also said that Yair is hurt and he's trying to hold the door. And uh, from that moment, at 9.15, 9.20, that was the last time we heard from them. And from that moment, for around 30 hours, agonizing hours where we don't know where are they or what are they doing. And within those 30 hours, uh, we called Renana just to find out what's going on with the boys. And that was another horrifying thing for us because she mentioned that since 6.30, she was on the phone with them every couple of minutes trying to see that they are safe, that they are holding the safe room door. And at one point, she heard people speaking in Arabic and uh, taking them. And the little boy said, uh, don't take me, I'm too young. And that was the last time that she heard from them. My wife came into the room with my sister and they said, Yaniv, you have to see this. Any of you have to see this. And I was going outside and I saw a movie that was made by Hamas, the propaganda movie that shows how they kidnapped my brother. The movie is horrifying because you see a lot of smoke within the house and you see a broken door and you see someone pulling out Yair and Meirav from the wrecks. And then the end of this propaganda movie was Yair sitting down on, on the floor, at least in a, in a conscious way. Let's say he was conscious at that moment. And uh, I was smiling towards my wife and my sister who, was, who were crying, tears of blood. And I was smiling and they asked me, and if, why are you smiling? And my reaction was, he's alive. You, you don't know how to even react in that situation or they don't know what to say in that situation. Then people want to hug us. People want to keep us optimistic some way, um, but they don't know what to say because in that situation where you don't know anything, it's hard to, to be optimistic, right? So we don't know. I, I, I really want the world to press on Hamas and even press on the leaders of Hamas. Uh, Hamas are, like Israel, are in the middle of this fight, this war, and uh, they are not seeing the big picture. I think only the world sees the big picture. We miss them so much. And... uh, I know that Sheer just said that they were supposed to come over on uh, that horrible Saturday. They were supposed to come visit us. So I'm waiting for you to come and visit us. We miss you all. We want you here. And we're hoping that it will be soon and that you'll come safe and sound to our hands, to our house, to Yair. The beer is cold in the fridge, waiting for you. 
Finally, we have a conversation with Orit Yablanka. Orit's brother Hanan was kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival. We spoke to Orit right after a hundred days had passed, since Hanan first went missing. Hanan is my younger brother. He's 42 years old. He's a dad to two kids. He's an amazing, loving guy with a huge heart. He has a ton of friends and always cares for others before himself. He loves to live life in the moment, doesn't think about what will be tomorrow, just in the here and now. And I love him a lot, and he's missing for me. What happened is that on October 7th, he went to the Nova Festival down south with four friends. And when the rockets started, they stopped the party, and they were the first that escaped with their car. They were driving, but a group of terrorists attacked them, and his four friends were murdered. I haven't even digested that. They're friends I know so well. And Hanan disappeared. They didn't find him for 90 days. For 90 days, he was considered missing. So we were in a state of uncertainty. We didn't know what happened. It was as if the earth sucked him up. After a month, we started to believe that he was taken hostage because there wasn't another option. And after 90 days, the IDF did indeed tell us that he was a hostage. But even now, we just know that he's a hostage. We don't know what his situation is. We don't know if he's okay or not. The truth is, I felt happy when they told us, as weird as it sounds to be happy that your brother is a hostage, at least I had proof that he's a hostage in Gaza and that there's hope and a chance that I'll see him one day. In the first month I left work, I couldn't focus on anything. I just dealt with my brother, especially because he was missing. So the whole family started looking for him in every place. So the first month I just did this and just would watch the news. Maybe I'd see or hear something. And then after a month, I realized it was hard on me and needed to clear my mind. So I decided to go back to work. But even when I'm at work, he's in my mind every second. I see him every moment. And also I work at a restaurant and there we put up posters of him, so I literally see him in front of my eyes all the time. There's this feeling in your stomach, I don't know how to explain it, a type of pain that doesn't leave you. And there's no air, you can't breathe. And the rest of my family also left their work, no one works. We were all together searching for him. My parents often go to a space for kidnapped families. They receive a lot of help, they're hugged and helped emotionally, and they even help monetarily to whomever needs it. They also sent our family, my sister and her husband, to New York City to explain the situation. They sent my mom to Prague. We are trying to keep Hanan in the public consciousness, whether on TV or like what I'm doing now, to keep Hanan in people's consciousness so people don't forget. My nephews, there's Yarin and Emily and the kids. At the beginning, we didn't really involve them because we tried to give them some space so they wouldn't take the situation hard, especially since we didn't know what to tell them about where their dad was. They'd ask, what's up with dad? Where is he? And we didn't have an answer because he was missing. But the moment they told us he was kidnapped and we told him, they were very happy. They're kids, but they understand. It gave them hope. They know there's a war, and we told them their dad went to the party to help people that were hurt, 
and he also got hurt, and we don't know what happened to him. So that's what we told them in accordance with what a psychologist told us to tell them, to make their dad into a hero. Even though, you know, kids know everything. They're at school, other kids talk to them, and they're on TikTok. But from our perspective, we tried to envelop them and not show them all the hard realities, and it pretty much worked for us. And now that they know that he's kidnapped, they're actually happy. They understand the meaning of kidnap, that their dad is in another country right now, and that one day he'll come back. They're waiting for him. We're at 102 days. I got up on the 100th day and felt very bad. It's a number we didn't think we'd get to. We were all sure that after a week, they'd come home. And each day, we count the days and count the days. And 100 came. And it's a really strong, powerful number. And I didn't feel good that day. It was really hard for me. I'm sure that all the families also had a tough day. It's a number that is simply incomprehensible. It's 100 days that are too much. And it continues. And every day that passes is harder than the last. So I just want to say thanks. And that I ask for whoever prays that they pray for the return of my brother, Hanan ben Vered. Just prayers, that's all I ask for, just prayers, as many as possible, and that Hanan will come back healthy and whole as quickly as possible. The Talmud tells us a beautiful and haunting story about Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania who learned one day that a Jewish baby was kidnapped and held hostage in Rome. Rabbi Yoshua wasn't a particularly wealthy or powerful person, but he planted himself firmly outside the prison and demanded loudly that the child held captive be released. They said, the rabbis of the Talmud make a point of telling us, that he didn't budge until he redeemed the child. It's an inspiring story. It really is. But where does it leave us? Few of us are at liberty to simply abandon everything and dedicate ourselves to redeeming the Israelis still held in captivity by Hamas. And even if we were, it's not like we could emulate Rabbi Yoshua and simply go sit in front of the prison because our captives are held in a nightmarish warren of underground tunnels Hamas had built for decades with hundreds of millions of dollars it received in good faith from an international community eager to help the Palestinian people and reluctant to question their leadership. What then can we do? All of us have been thinking about it a lot. And while there's no satisfying answer, there's one thing we should and absolutely must do. If the men and the women held captive, old and young, are truly our brothers and sisters, we should, at the very least, know their names, as we would know the names of our literal sisters and our actual brothers. With thanks to our friends at Nefesh Mountain for the beautiful music, and to Tablet Magazine's executive editor, Wayne Hoffman, for reading out this heartbreaking list, would like all of us to take a few moments right now and simply listen. Listen to the names of those still in captivity and promise yourself that, like Rabbi Hoshua ben Hanania, you too won't budge until they're free. 
Tamir Adar, Hisham Shaban al-Sayed, Hamza al-Zayadni, Yosef al-Zayadni, Liri Albag, Edan Alexander, Kaid Farhan Al-Kadi, Matan Angrist, Noah Argamani, Karina Ariev, Sahar Baruch, Uriel Baruch, Ohad Ben-Ami, Ron Benjamin, Agam Berger, Gali Berman, Ziv Berman, Ariel Bibas, Kfir Bibas, Shiri Bibas, Yardane Bibas, Elkanah Bokbot, Rom Braslavsky, Yagev Buchstab, Esther Amit Buskila, Tal Chaimi, Itai Chen, Elia Cohen, Nimrod Cohen, Amiram Cooper, Ariel Cunio, David Cunio, Oz Daniel, Ori Danino, Evyatar David, Sagi Dechel Chen, Itzik Elgarat, Carmel Gat, Itzhak Gelertner, Daniel Gilboa, Guy Gilboa Dalal, Hadar Golden, Oren Golden, Romi Gonen, Ron Givili, God Hagai, Inbar Hyman, Luis Har, Maxime Herkin, Orion Hernandez, Polin Hirsch Goldberg, Eitan Horn, Yair Horn, Tsachi Idan, Bipin Joshi, Ofer Calderon, Segev Kalfon, Elad Katsir, Andre Kozlov, Bar Cooperstein, Shai Levinson, Eitan Levy, Naama Levy, Or Levy, Eliakim Liebman, Oded Lifshitz, Alexander Lobanov, Shlomo Mansur, Fernando Simon Marman, Almog Meir Jan, Avera Mengitsu, Yoram Metzger, Omri Miran, Joshua Loitu Molel, Eitan Abraham Moor, Gadi Moshe Moses, Abraham Munder, Omer Nutra, Tamir Nimrod, Michel Nissenbaum, Yosef Ohana, Alon Ohel, Avinathan Orr, Dror Orr, Daniel Perez, Chaim Perry, Nadav Popolwell, Lior Rudayev, Yonatan Mordechai Semerano, Almog Sarusi, Eli Sharabi, Yossi Sharabi, Oron Shaul, Omer Shemtov, Tal Shoham, Idan Shtivi, Samuel Keith Siegel, Doron Steinbrecher, Itai Svirsky, Alexander Trubanov, Judy Weinstein, Ilan Weiss, Omer Wenkert, Hanan Yablanka, Ohad Yahalomi, Yaakov Yair, Arbel Yehud, Dolev Yehud, 
Eden Yerushalmi, Matan Zangauker, Shlomi Ziv, Emily Damari. עם ישראל חי. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest.